This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. Well, so this morning is the first Sunday in a season that we call Lent. Lent comes from a word that means lengthening, referring to the lengthening of days over the spring. And much like Advent is a season of waiting and anticipation and preparation for Christmas, uh, Lent is an extended season of reflection and repentance, if you will, in preparation for the Easter season. It's a season in the church liturgical calendar, right? This lived remembrance of the life of Christ by the body of Christ that dates back to the fourth century. And it's a season that lasts 40 days, excluding the Sundays, as a lived remembrance of the 40 days that Jesus spent in the wilderness, fasting and praying and preparing for his ministry, which is why some have incorporated fasting into their practice of the season and why Esau Macaulay, in his uh, new book on, on the season of Lent, he, he describes the season as a quieting of the soul and a lessening of distractions so that we can again hear the voice of God. It's a season that begins on Ash Wednesday, the day after Punchki Day. I've practiced that word so many times this week. The day after Punchki Day, a day of uh, reflection of the inevitability of our own death. And a season that concludes on Holy Saturday, the day after Christ's own death on the cross, commemorated on Good Friday, the day before his victorious resurrection, celebrated on Easter Sunday, a day where, as we recite in the Apostles' Creed, he descended into the place of the dead. Jesus truly died as a human. But at its core, Lent is a season of reflection and repentance of sin as we come to see the depth of our own sin, seeing how uh, the most damaging poison that has ever existed has infected our hearts, has spread throughout our entire being and impacted all of creation. However, as Macaulay goes on to write, a season dedicated to repentance and renewal should not lead us to despair, but cause us to praise God for his grace. Because, see, the more that we come to see the depth of our sin, the more we come to see the extent of God's love, amen? If there's a big idea for this series of Hosea, that's what it is. The more we come to see the depth of our sin, the more we come to see the extent of God's love, love that, that came to us, God with us, love that dis was displayed on the cross for the, for the whole world to see, love that died for us, love that defeated death, love that gives us life. And that is the love that we see when we read the book of Hosea. We see the depth of Israel's sin as God's people. And God, he's using some rather graphic and language to describe their sin, isn't he? And he's calling his people throughout this book to repentance, to return to him, to renew their pursuit of him. And then sprinkled throughout these 14 chapters are six messages of hope along the way, the, the good news of Hosea, the gospel in Hosea, that allows us to, to see into the heart of God, seeing the extent of God's love for his people. And so we're going to spend these six Sundays in the season of Lent seeing into the heart of God here in Hosea, seeing the depth of our sin as we reflect and repent on our sin, but also seeing the extent of God's love 
as we return to God, renewing our pursuit of God and our obedience to God. And so the book of Hosea, uh, it's split into two main sections. There's a, a story and a sermon. There's a story of Hosea's family, and there's a sermon to God's people. And so we're going to spend the first three weeks in this story, Hosea's story, in the opening three chapters, a story that is representative of Israel's story that reveals their sin. And then we're going to spend the last three weeks in Hosea's sermon, this sermon of repentance, of calling his people to return and renew their pursuit of God. And so let's say, if you haven't already, open your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Hosea. If you get to Daniel, it's the next one. If you get to Matthew, flip back just a little bit. Open to Hosea. We're going to be in chapter 1 this morning. And this opening chapter, especially this opening verse, really sets the stage for the story. We get to see the prophet, his message, and the meaning of the message for his family, for the people of Israel, and for us as the church. And so let's, let's meet this prophet. Let's see the setting of the story here. Look down with me. Hosea chapter 1, verse 1 begins. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, and the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. We actually know very little about Hosea, other than his name, which is a variation of Yeshua, where we get Joshua and Jesus, which means to save, it means salvation. Not only his name, we, we, but we know his vocation too, don't we? We know he was, a, he was a prophet. It says later on in verse 2 that when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, it says here, when the word of the Lord came to Hosea, and that's because when a prophet of God, when a prophet spoke, it was as though God himself was speaking through the prophet. He was the, the mouthpiece of God to his people. So we learn a little bit about the who. We also learn about the when. We learn when the story took place based on the reign of the kings of the southern kingdom of, Jer of, um, uh, of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel mentioned here. And it takes place in the, in the 8th century with Hosea prophesying over about a 30-year period there in the middle of the century from about 755 to 725 B.C., and so we're about uh, 200 years or so after this once great kingdom under the reign of King David, after it uh, fractured and, and split in two following the death of his son Solomon with the 10 northern tribes uh, seceding and breaking away and forming their own nation. And over those 200 years, the, the southern kingdom of, of Judah it continued to experience relative stability, if you will, led by kings from the line of David with their capital in Jerusalem, there with the temple. But the northern kingdom of Israel that, that Hosea will sometimes refer to as Ephraim, they experienced near constant chaos. Their story looks a bit more like Game of Thrones. It, they had uh, different houses assassinating kings and ascending to their own iron throne that they had built in their capital in Samaria. And so here in the northern kingdom of Israel, this is where the story takes place. These are the people that Hosea is speaking to. And so now that we have a bit of a feel for the setting of the story, let's enter into this story. Let's see the message of this story. And he says in verse 2, he says, When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go and take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. Not really what we expect God to say to one of his prophets. But yeah, like God's got a habit of asking his prophets to do some weird things. He, um, 
He had Isaiah walk around naked and barefoot preaching for three years. He's not asked me to do that. He's asked Ezekiel to, to lie on his side for over a year, not getting up, as a symbol of the judgment on God's people. And then here it says he told Hosea, take a wife of whoredom. He's telling him to marry a woman that he knew would be unfaithful to him, to love a woman he knew would never love him the way that he loved her, knowing that she would break his heart by breaking the marriage covenant, knowing she would commit adultery by sleeping with other men. But he didn't just ask him to do that. He also told him to love and care for her children afford him to willingly raise some other guy's kids that she brought home, choosing to raise them as his own, to love and care for them as his own, as his adopted children. And he uses some rather vulgar and graphic language to describe the story, language like, can we be honest, it probably makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable. You cringe a little bit. You might be wondering if like, Pastor, can we soften it a bit? Like, I'm, I'm reading from the NIV, and it just says promiscuous woman. That just seems a little nicer. I mean, like, after all, we got kids in the room, Pastor Ash. Like, your own kids are in here. But no, we can't. We're not going to soften the language, because to soften the graphic nature of the language as God describes it would be to soften the graphic nature of sin the way God sees it. We can't do that, can we? See, if we want to see into the heart of God, we need to see how vile and revolting our sin is and the presence of sin in our world is. We need to see, the way, see sin the way God sees sin. And so we can't soften it. We can't water it down. And, and these words... Um, these words were intended to make Israel feel uncomfortable. That's why they make us feel uncomfortable. That's because this story, uh, this marriage, Hosea's life and his family, uh, it's a metaphor, right? It's a metaphor for Israel's story and Israel's covenant with God. A metaphor was how God went about communicating the meaning of this message, Right? Not just through words spoken by the prophet that the people could hear, but through a life lived by the prophet that the people could see, right? A lived story. And he says in verse 2, he says, For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Huh? I mean, like, as with all of creation, like, the land is very much impacted by sin, right? All I got to say is potholes, and all God's people said, Hear me, though, like, the land didn't commit sin. That's not the land's fault that we have potholes. It's Cook County's fault. That wasn't in my notes. I wasn't supposed to say that. The land didn't commit sin. No, the, much of Hosea, it is, it's poetic. It is prophetic. It is a painting a picture with words, if you will, pictures that reveal the meaning of the message, meaning not all of the words of Scripture are meant to be read literally. Okay, the, this is a personification of the land because the land of Israel and the people of Israel, they were one and the same. 
They, they were connected by covenant. Right? See, what, what set uh, God's people, what set the nation of Israel apart as God's chosen people was the land that God had given to them and the law that God had given to them. After God uh, liberated his people from Egypt and he brought them out into the wilderness, he, he brought them to Mount Sinai. Right? And he, he made a covenant with his people. And he was going to bless them, blessing them with, with, with land and making them into a great nation, fulfilling the promise that he made to Abraham. And, and God's people, as his chosen people, his image bearers, they were to reflect his image. They were to be a light unto the nations. And God made it very clear, didn't he, that um, they were to have no other gods before him or even next to him, and they were to worship no other gods other than him or even beside him. It was to be God and God alone. And as long as they lived in obedience to his law, as long as they lived out their calling as a chosen people to reflect God's image and his goodness out into the world, they would continue living in the land given to them. They would continue living in the midst of God's presence there among them. That's why God said in Leviticus 26, 12, he says, I will walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. But he also warned them in the covenant that if they rejected God's, if they rejected his law, if they turned from him and trusted in other things, they would be disciplined. If they continued, they would be struck down and overtaken by enemies. And if they continued to persist, they would ultimately be exiled, removed from the land, no longer a nation no longer his chosen people. And here we see God describing what his people of the northern kingdom of Israel had done as having committed great whoredom. Like Hosea's wife would break the marriage covenant, they had broken their covenant with God, pursuing a level of intimacy with another and forsaking the Lord. And, and so we're thinking idolatry, and when we think of idolatry, we think the Old Testament of carved idols, right? But it's not just that they cast a giant golden bull, which they did, uh, representing the Canaanite god Baal, this god of fer fertility and prosperity. It wasn't just that they did that. It wasn't just that they worshipped Baal, hoping that he would bring about a, a time of prosperity that apparently Yahweh had failed to do, hoping that he would bless their crops, bless their families, bless their nation. Because, see, they were... They hadn't entirely rejected God. They were, they were grateful for what Yahweh had done in, in making them into a nation. But they were also like, it, it kind of seems like there's only so much you're capable of doing. And so uh, they brought in reinforcements, kind of. They, um, they called in for backup. They, they went to the bullpen. Starting pitcher, starting to fade in the seventh inning. Let's bring in the reliever. And so they brought in Baal. And they gave thanks to Baal. God made them a nation, but they gave thanks to Baal for making them a prosperous nation. And so what they did was they took a little bit of what they liked about worship of Yahweh. There were some things that they were good with. And then they're like, but these people that live here with us, the, the Canaanite people, we're going to take a little bit of their worship of Baal, and we're going to kind of mix it together and make something new. A little of this, a little of that. And that is what we call religious synchronism. And it's a word that you're like, I don't know. I never heard that one. That's okay. Think of this. If you're a foodie, foodies in the room? I mean, like, we live in Chicago. We live in the foodie capital of the world. We don't live in Chicago. We live near Chicago, just in case there's somebody here that's actually from Chicago. 
I got an amen on that one. They're from Chicago. There's another one from Chicago. Suburban Chicago, Chicago land, all acceptable. Just don't say you're from Chicago. But here's the thing. If you're a foodie, you refer to this little, this little, that as fusion, right? Um, bringing different cultures and flavors together to create something new, something no one has ever tasted, something that, that is absolutely going to blow your mind. It is incredible. But not when we do it with God. This intimacy in our relationship with God, this worship that we offer to God, it is for God and God alone. It is not to be shared with another. And when we do, we commit great whoredom. Israel had become an idolatrous, adulterous whore who broke their covenant with God. They effectively brought somebody home, stripped down naked, and got into bed with them, with their spouse lying right next to them. Imagine if that's you, lying in the bed, your spouse doing this to you right next to you. Like it's no big deal, like it's okay. If you're wondering how God views our sin, our sharing this intimacy, this worship reserved for God and God alone, now you know. And as we begin to see the depth of our sin, and it's deep, isn't it? That's when we begin to see the extent of God's love for us. That's when we begin to see into the heart of God. Because what we see here in this metaphor, in this story, we see Hosea as a loving father to a wife of whoredom, asked by God to enter into a covenant with a woman he knew would be unfaithful to him, representing God as a loving husband to a people of whoredom and entering into a covenant with people he knew would be unfaithful to him. He was surprised by nothing. But not just that, we also see Hosea as a loving father to children of whoredom, born out of sin, representing God as a loving father to people born into sin that he has chosen, that he has adopted, and that he loves. And here's what's fascinating. God, Hosea, he didn't push back. He didn't stall. He did exactly what God asked of him. It says in verse 3, so he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblam, and, and he married her. And it, for all we know, it began as a very happy marriage, right? They, they went on their honeymoon. They went to some island on a resort on the beach, I mean, you're, you're close to the Mediterranean. That might be a thing 3,000 years ago. I don't know. They were in love, but it, and it wasn't long before she found out she was, she was pregnant. They were going to have a child, and she gave, she gave birth to a son. And, and as Hosea is holding his son, that happiness that he felt, it didn't last long. As God told him to name his newborn son Jezreel. And in that moment, he knew. 
He knew this name. He knew this place. He knew the stories of violence and bloodshed associated with name. For example, when you hear the names of places like the Trail of Tears, Omaha Beach, Auschwitz, Chernobyl, you know. You don't need to hear the story behind those names because you already know the stories of the gruesome and violent death that took place there, stories that are synonymous with the name. And so when Hosea heard the name Jezreel, this, this valley, this town in Israel, he knew. He knew the way we know when we hear Auschwitz. He knew the story of, of Naboth's vineyard in Jezreel, a story we read in 1 Kings 21, how when he refused to sell his uh, vineyard to King Ahab, his wife Jezebel, she, um, she made him an offer he couldn't refuse. She had him stoned to death. That's the offer. And she took the vineyard and she gave it to her husband as this incredible present. Here, honey, look what I got for you. But God, he... Um, he came to have a talk with Ahab about what had happened. And he, he said to him through his prophet Elijah, he said, um, disaster is going to come upon your house. That, that, that his house's blood would be spilled in the very place where Naboth's blood was spilled. And that dogs would devour his wife. And about a decade later, we read the story of God anointing Jehu, a commander in the army, and, and anointing him as the future king of Israel. And he told him to go and strike down the house of Ahab for their violence, for their faithlessness, and to claim the iron throne for himself and his family. And so Jehu, he, he set up a meeting with the king there in the vineyard in Jezreel, and, and he shot him in the heart with an arrow and killed him. And then he had Jezebel thrown out from her window, and, and it says that her blood splattered. And it said horses trampled her and dogs feasted on her body such that, so that all that was left was her skull and the palms of her hand and her feet. And then he went on and he slayed the entire house of Ahab, killing 70 people and severing their heads and stacking them up at the gate. And you know what God said to Jehu when all this was done? He says, you've done well. You did what I asked. And he said, your house will reign for four generations. Like these are the stories that Hosea is playing in his head as God told him to name his son Jezreel. And he went on to say in verse four, he says, for in just a little while, I'm gonna punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. I'm gonna bring that blood upon them and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. God would discipline his children, punishing the people of the land for what they had done. And like, that's pretty bad in and of itself, isn't it? But it gets worse. The story keeps going. Because see, his wife, she... um. She found out she was pregnant again, and she gave birth to her second child. She gave birth to a daughter, only this was not Hosea's child. She had, as God predicted, became a wife of whoredom, breaking the marriage covenant and having children of whoredom, some other guy. It all happened just as God said it would. But Hosea, he was to name this baby girl that his wife had brought home, thereby adopting her as his own, Luruma. 
Meaning no mercy, no compassion. One who is not to be pitied, one who is not to be loved. Because God says, I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. And as harsh and cold and as unloving as that sounds, it shows something. It shows how we are unable to experience God's mercy and enjoy his love as long as we are chasing after and worshiping other things. When we turn from God and we turn to other things and trust in other things, there are times when God, as our loving Father, disciplines us, his children, by allowing us to experience the very things that we pursue and desire, things that draw our attention and our affection away from him. Experiencing that void, that emptiness, that silence. And that was true for Israel. But not Judah, not yet. He says, I'll have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or horsemen, though. And yet even here, God, God was patient. God was still merciful because he, he gave Israel time to reflect on their sin, to repent of their sin. Because it says that um, Gomer went on to wean her daughter, a period of time that would have lasted two or three years. But then she brought him home, another child, a second son, who was also not Hosea's child, yet another child of whoredom. And so he says in verse 9, and the Lord said, call his name not my people, lo ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. They had broken the covenant with God. And so God responded in the very way that he said he would at Sinai. Right? Having been warned and disciplined time and time again, they would now be struck down and overtaken by their enemies and ultimately exiled. They would no longer be a nation because they would no longer live in the land. They would no longer be his people because he would no longer be their God. They would no longer know him as the great I am, but as not I am. Withdrawing his his mercy toward them, and his presence among them. And man, Israel's story played out just like the story of Hosea's family. In the fourth generation after Jehu, God brought blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu, just like he said. And King Zechariah was assassinated, bringing an end to the house of Jehu as another house took over. Man, Israel had been given time. They had been given nearly three decades to reflect on their sin and to repent of their sin and return to God, this time of weaning, if you will. And so as the, the neighboring Assyrians, as they rose to power and began their attack, the, the, the people of Israel, they, they turned to and they trusted in other nations for help rather than turning to God. And so God allowed Israel to be struck down and overtaken by the Assyrians in 722, capturing the capital in Samaria, destroying the nation of Israel and removing the people, taking them into exile. And yet God showed mercy on Judah as the, the Assyrians, they kept on going and they were entering into to Judah, nearing Jerusalem. But God saved them. 
We talked about this story a couple of weeks ago. He saved them not by bow or sword or war horse or horseman or any war. No, he saved them by an angel of the Lord who who struck down 185,000 of their troops and those that were left. Man, they took off for home. Everything took place exactly as God said, both according to the story of Hosea's family, this metaphor for Israel, as well as the covenant he made with his people at Sinai. Anybody wondering about now, hey, Pastor Ash, where's the good news? I thought you mentioned there was a message of hope somewhere here. When you said six weeks and six messages of hope, we just assumed we would end on a message of hope. But hearing a lot of blood, little hope. Well, the story's not over. Look at that next word with me. Look at that word in verse 10. What's that word? Yet. It's one of the two best words in all of Scripture. You know what the other best word is? But. It's assuming it's followed with God. But God. That's what we got here. Yet, but God. And what, he's, what it means is that in spite of all that had transpired, as we come to see the depth of Israel's sin and our own Sin, we come to see here the extent of God's love, seeing into the heart of God as he declares his intent to restore his people and his kingdom, as he declares his intent to renew his once very good creation. And he makes four declarations here of the good news. And Hosea, look here with me at verse 10. The first declaration, he says, yet the number of children of Israel, they shall be like sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. He's referring back here to the promises of Abraham to bless his descendants who would outnumber the stars of the heaven and the sands of the sea. Even though they were once a great nation and now were not a nation, God would still fulfill his promise. Second declaration, he says, and in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God, that there in this land that God had promised to Abraham, the fulfillment of promise would begin to take place as he made for himself a new people. The third declaration in verse 11, he says, and the children of Judah and the children of Israel, they shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one singular head. People who had been divided for centuries would now be united under the reign of a king, God's anointed king. And declaration number four, and they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Not only would a remnant return from exile, but a renewal would take place. Uh, a renewal of God's people, of their worship of him. You might say revival was gonna break out. As God's people, they would, they would grow and they would sprout within this very land but then they would go from this land and they would share from this land. They would now be a light to the nations as God has always intended, as all the peoples of the earth would be blessed as God promised Abraham. But not only that, God's presence would once again dwell among his people. Not in a tent, not in the tabernacle, not in a room in the temple, but in a man, in Jesus the one in whom all the promises of God find their yes, find their fulfillment. The one in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell as Emmanuel, God with us, who came to us as one of us. 
The one who declared the kingdom of God is at hand. It has already begun to arrive, not in some distant point in the future, but now calling us to respond by repenting of our sin and our infidelity to God and calling us to believe in who he is and why he came to take on our sin and forgive us of our sin. Because he is the one through whom we have received God's unmerited mercy and his undeserved love. Sanctifying us, Paul says, his people, the church. We are the wife of whoredom. But in Jesus, he has cleansed us of our shame, forgiven us of our sin, and presented us to himself, Paul says, in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that we might be holy and without any blemish. And we've got some blemishes that he took away, didn't he? He is the one who reigns today, right now, not in some distant future, having defeated death alive and ascending to the right hand of God the Father and the one through whom all things were not only created, but will we be renewed upon his return. Not in a disembodied heaven, but in a new creation, a new heaven, a new earth. We are Gomer. We are the wife of whoredom. We are the children of whoredom. We are Jezreel because we are people of violence. Violent words, violent actions, violent thoughts. We are Loruma. We are people undeserving of mercy. We are Loami. We are people undeserving of God's love. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Amen? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. All means all. But what I need us to know is that our fundamental identity is not that of sinners. It is not that of whores. Our fundamental identity is of those in Christ, amen? We, we were first image bearers. Human beings created by God to, in his image, to reflect his image and goodness out into our world, and we are now chosen, beloved children of the living God. And our dwelling in Christ as he his spirit dwells in us. That is what unites us together as family so that we can say to our brothers, you are my people. Steve, you're my people. Dan, you're my people. Ben, you're my people. All the rest of you on this side, you're also my people. Josh and Luis, you're my people too. We're each other's people. And so that we can say to our sisters who who don't sit below us but stand next to us, amen? You have received mercy. So that we can say to one another, you are beloved. Can you just say that real quick? You are beloved. You are beloved, chosen, adopted children of God, our Abba, our Father. We are his beloved. That's the extent of God's love. That's the extent of God's love for you, for me, for us. But the only way that we can appreciate the extent of God's love is by acknowledging the depth of our sin and the chasm that our sin has dug between you and God. See, here's the thing. that The smaller that you see your sin, the smaller you see this chasm. So small that you can step right over it. 
Who needs a savior? I got it. I'm good. I just did this little thing. I messed up last week, but I'm good now. If you see your sin that small, how are you ever going to see God's love? What did he do for you if you did it yourself? But as we reflect on our sin, the, the depth of our sin, how sin has infected our hearts, our minds, our physical bodies, it has infected the things that we create. It has infected all of creation. We begin to get a glimpse and to see sin from God's perspective. Seeing just how wide the chasm is, how deep the chasm is that separates us from God. So, so wide, we could never jump over. So deep, we could never climb out of it. That's where we see that our only hope is for God to cross it, for God to close it by his unmerited love, his undeserved mercy. Then we begin to see the extent of God's love and what he has done for us in and through Christ on the cross, through his resurrection. Then, and only then, can we truly begin to see into the heart of God to see how much he loves us and to see the good news of the gospel here in Hosea. Amen. I don't want you to walk away thinking that um, as Christians we are to focus on repentance for six weeks out of the year, 40 days outside of Sundays, and then we're done. No, uh, Luther, you guys ever heard of a guy named Martin Luther? He did some things a while back. He was in the news. He, um, he went to church one day, and they had a bulletin board. Remember how churches used to have bulletin boards? Their bulletin board was their front door, and he, uh, he uh, put a memo on the door. 95-point sermon. First point is that when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, when he said the kingdom of his kingdom is heaven is at hand, repent, he willed that the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So please don't leave thinking repentance is a six-week, 40-day Mark Wahlberg challenge. No, it is a way of living. It's a way of living that we often forget about and which is why we have this focused season, an extended season on it because we are people who are quick to forget. And so let's begin this extended season of reflection and repentance doing just that. I want to give you time to reflect, to examine your heart and repent of your sin before we respond and before we receive communion. And so Rebecca's going to play for these next minute or so, and I just want to invite you to close your eyes, bow your head, positioning yourselves before God, opening yourselves to God as we sang this morning, allowing the Spirit to stir, allowing the Spirit to speak. Let Him show you the depth of your sin so that He can show you the extent of God's love, repenting of that sin and receiving that forgiveness. And then I'm going to close this by reading this good news over us and praying before we take communion. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. 
For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.